I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 per month at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European podcast, British Eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 per month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. My name's Steve Anglesey, and I had the strangest dream last night, you know. Tim Martin from Weatherspoons was asking for more EU migrants to come in over here and work behind his bars and hand out his Brexit beer mats. And then Pretty Patel came in with a statement saying, it is vital that we take action to stamp out corruption. And then a bloke who's been divorced twice and unfaithful several times ended up getting married in a Catholic church. Just too much cheese before bedtime, I suppose. Before we talk to this week's guest, let's talk about the wedding of Carrie and Boris Johnson, or the threequel, as I think it said on the invites. We asked listeners of the New European podcast what they would buy for Carrie and Boris Johnson to mark their wedding. And this is what you said. Sarah Daisy Slater said she would get them a huge gift voucher from John Lewis. Margaret Bowden said she would get them a copy of both of his previous marriage certificates framed, the ones not recognised by the church that he married Carrie in. That would be nice. Ralph Cutting said he would get Boris Johnson and Carrie a scoreboard with divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Boris could fill in the gaps accordingly. And Raffle Piotr Chleplinski, uh, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, uh, Raffle, said a hairbrush for him, prescription glasses for her. Kent Rejoiner said a box set of Line of Duty, an inexplicably popular tale of corruption in high places with an ending that will disappoint its most ardent fans. More of what you would buy for Carrie and Boris Johnson. Michael Joynson said he would get them a full list of all the food banks in the country so they can get a grip on their perceived poverty. John Paul Bove said a vasectomy and an ankle tag. That's nice. And Abby Heron Newell said she would treat them to a slap up meal for two in a pub. Uh, It would have to be a pub in Cornwall where the fishermen drink, though. I'm not sure that would go down too well. Uh, Alan Bauer said he would get them pole dancing lessons. I I think there might be an American lady who could help with that. And Nigel Goodwin said he would get them two presents, a new sofa and a bottle of red wine. (laughs) 
My first guest today appeared in the New Europeans' very first issue. Now, nearly five years later, she's returned to the paper as the author of a wonderful and uh, rightly popular column called German Splaining, which does pretty much what it says on the tin. It explains Germany to uh, us Britons. She is the former editor of Germany's biggest tabloid paper, Bilt, Tani Koch. How are you, Tanit? Excellent. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, the column is so funny, it's so insightful, and the, the response to it has been so huge. I think that is partly because we are quietly, well, maybe not quietly, maybe loudly obsessed with Germany. Do, do German people spend as much time thinking about British people as we do thinking about them, do you think? I'm afraid not, but they hold British people in high esteem. But um, certainly, if you, if you look at what happened ever since Brexit, it's been on sort of the front pages of, of, of British papers. It hardly ever made, after sort of the, the event itself, it hardly ever made the front pages in, in German papers because people just thought, well, Brits have sort of gone mad and um, let's move on. But um, I'm, I must say, I'm, I, I feel very, very um, privileged to, to write that column, especially because there's a wonderful editorial team, which is much more polite, as I can say, for, 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 the, whole, for the whole of Britain, much more polite than any German editor would be, including myself. Um, and that's what I, what I wrote about in the last, uh, in the last column, uh, that um, there's a bit of sort of second guessing for Germans whenever, whenever you, you speak English, you don't really know, does he, does he really want to invite me for a drink or is there just him being nice or her being nice um so there are a couple of cultural differences and I'm, I'm sort of trying to to bridge that a little there are there are many cultural differences aren't there and we will we'll come <laughs> on to a few of those um how has brexit gone for you obviously five years um since uh, since that first edition uh, of the new european has uh, do you think germans think it's it's turned out pretty much as they expected or has it actually gone worse for Britain than, than, than you thought it might, or better even? Well, I'm afraid that most German have a pretty realistic view that it's sort of not uh, in Britain's best interest to, to sort of, at least for economic reasons, to, to have left the European Union. What they don't see, what, what a lot of German people, I'd say the majority, does not realise is how bad it is actually going to be for Germany having having Great Britain um, leaving the or left left the European Union, because um, not just for financial reasons, uh, sort of a big net um, contrib contributor being gone, but that sort of voice of reason when it comes to certain um, demands or or, or uh, wishes by Brussels, there was always um, sort of the the more sceptical British view, and and uh, you you don't really find any democratic party in, in, in Germany that would go against Brussels in sort of in principle. So it's a vastly pro-European nation, which is good. Um, but sometimes that sort of, um, I, I don't know, clouds uh, the, <clears throat> the realistic view on, on things that, that go wrong in Brussels, as we can see uh, during the vaccination campaign, I think um, Britain was, uh, was, it was easier for Britain to, to act alone. Um, whereas uh, sort of the attempt to have a to have a, a, a European um, so solidaric um, approach um, was it was a good thought, but didn't didn't work out properly. And I think maybe with the with the very practical and pragmatic British approach in in the EU, still uh, we would have done better. It's, I mean, it's amazing to hear uh, to, to hear Britain described as the voice of reason when it comes to matters. Well, of the, <laughs> matters sometimes, of the, sometimes yes. you are. And... <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
here we are, we're, we're, we're nearly three months away now, aren't we, from the end of 16, is it 16 years of, of Angela Merkel as, as Chancellor? It is, yes, I mean, yes. The, I mean, the political obituaries we could, we can say for, for another time, but what's, what are Germans feeling now? Is it, is it excitement at the start of something, a whole new chapter, or is, is there worry because of this era of calm certainty and, and quiet leadership maybe coming to an end? Well, it's twofold. First of all, we're still in the pandemic, so people aren't sort of excited about an election. They're actually excited about finally getting their, their, their jab, and uh, a lot of people still haven't got an appointment. So that's basically the first priority. Um, Angela Merkel by now has managed to sort of um, to, to already uh, get into the sort of uh, the level of elder stateswoman, although she's still in office. She's sort of above party politics, you can say, and she's uh, she's hugely popular still. Um, but people do realize that 16 years um, of uh, one person mainly in charge or absolutely in charge is maybe not the best if you want to innovate and and want, want, want change. So Germany as a whole, if you look at the political culture, it does want its sort of stability and um, certainly not too much innovation and too much change. But um, there's some polls which have been published recently on whether people think that limiting the, the term of office would be a good idea because by now it's, it's unlimited. If, if Angela Merkel had said, I want to run again, um, maybe her, her party would have uh, started a, a rebellion, but she it, it would have been completely constitutional to say she's going to run again. And 16 years, people now realize, is a long time. And we've had it before. We've had it with Transitcore and um, I don't know, I had, had a lot of... Uh, had a lot of time in office as well, and so there are voices now who call for for limiting um, limit, limiting the period of being being chancellor. Would how different would would Armin Lascher or, or Annalena Baerbock actually be then if if Germany you know tends to tends to crave stability? Oh, we'll see about that once. Others managed to, to to win the election, so it's difficult to, to tell now. But um, I think that if you look at the the whole era, Merkel, it was very much dominated by crises. So um, complaining about sort of Germans' digitization pro uh, process not having been pushed through um, fast enough—that's absolutely true. So we're lacking behind, lagging behind in, in so many in so many fields, and people are actually quite shocked what uh, the pandemic has sort of brought to light in terms of um, tardiness and just very very slow processes within administration and um, and all sorts of sort of um, things that don't run well. And 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 most people always considered their country to be run well, and now we see there are a lot of things that just that don't, um, if you look at sort of people um, wanting to get tested or, or uh, when, when the masks were um, were handed out to, to people above 65 years, um, seriously, there was a lack of, although in Germany, you do have to, to, to tell administration wherever you live, unlike Britain, where you don't have to sort of to, to go to, uh, to, to the mayor's office and tell them, by the way, this is my address. You do have to do that in Germany. So the data are all that, but they didn't manage to sort of connect data and people in need of masks. And so there was a whole of bureaucratic chaos and that's what people have, have realized and are shocked about. So um, the era Merkel um, certainly had, the, had, had, had its deficits and deficiencies, but um, you had the Euro crisis, you had the financial crisis, uh, you had the Ukraine crisis, you had the refugee crisis. So she sort of steered the country very well through, some people would, 
would say not that very well, not that well, but um, I'd say she's, um, we've been better off with her than, than without. Um, but amidst all these, these crises, um, other things did not happen to, to innovate the country, to, to renovate the country maybe. Um, and this will be up to, to the next chancellor because people do see the need um, to modernize. Although again, um, people don't call for radical changes in Germany. We're much too sort of focused on continuity here. And you've, I mean, you've talked about those um, those struggles for the, the, the lack of digitization and that curbs on um, on uh, data, the data protection and abundance of data protection um, have, have meant on the to the, the vaccine rollout causing huge problems at the start. What's what's the the, the state of the vaccine rollout? Uh, in Germany now, how 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 much have you you managed to catch up? Well, you you're far ahead still, and congratulations. Um, well, we needed a win. I, yes, and I I think it, it's interesting if you look at which countries got sort of the 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 second round round sort of right, which was the vaccination, not so much the sort yeah. of lockdown and and being quick on 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 measures to. To contain the pandemic, if you look at Israel, the U.S. and and uh, and Britain, um, there was huge pressure on all sort of politicians in charge on on, on government to get it right in sort of the second round. Whereas um, there wasn't that much pressure here, I'm afraid to say, because um, and that's sort of a uh, one of the more negative things I, I can say about German political or or. or I don't know, a political culture or society, we, we think we, we'll get it right and we're better. So in, in the first months into the pandemic, um, when the numbers didn't soar in, in, in Germany, whereas they did in Italy and France and the UK, of course, we thought, well, that's Germany, of course, we're, we're better than the rest and, and we'll manage. So people absolutely underestimated the second wave. There were even um, high-ranking people who considered the second wave not, not, not to be happening. So um, there was not enough pressure also by media to uh, to put on government to to really up their game and and uh, and, and get things sorted and be be fast uh, for once um, or be quick and um, luckily by now we've I think we've about 45 percent of the general population has at least had one jab and 20 percent got two doses so Government is promising that by the end of the summer, everyone will at least have had one dab and an appointment for for the second one. There's still shortages uh, at times and, and still chaos, but because um, the, the the sort of the doctors are now um, uh, are now in charge, not just uh, not just vaccination centres, but proper doctors who can so who know who's who's at risk among their patients. Um, they've been been sort of moved into the process as well. Um, things are handled in a in a in a much better and less chaotic way than at the beginning, and then of course let me just add that we are a federal country, so there are sixteen mm. states, and <laughs> we did not manage for the most part to have, unlike France, unlike Italy or Britain, to have um, sort of a general um, uh, rule for, for 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 many many things, either sort of lockdown measures or vaccination processes, um, sort of how, how do people get their appointment would differ from uh, from state to state. And that does not make things easier. And people don't sort of mind the federal system, which has its advantages. But it, it, it feels like, so why, I don't know, a couple of kilometers away, can people already eat al fresco and I cannot? And um, 
because it's May and the sun is shining, um, luckily things are, are loosening up. The, the infection rate is, uh, seven day infection rate is down to 34, which is very, very low. Um, there's still deaths um, in sort of at about 150 deaths per, per, per day. Um, but all in all, people do see uh, a silver lining, which is getting bigger and bigger by the day. Well, long may uh, long may that continue. Um, two of your two of your yeah. Well, it's great, isn't it? I, th- I mean, I, you know, I think our I think our rates, our, our vaccination rates now are I think are 70, 75 for one dose, and maybe I think it's forty five for two doses. So yeah, that is amazing. a that is a UK a, an English uh, victory over Germany, which I think we will probably as we head into another football tournament. I think that will probably be the the last English <laughs> victory over Germany of the summer. But but uh, but we'll cling to we'll that. We'll see. <clears throat> we just two... tied against Denmark, so don't be too sure about that. <laughs> well, I mean, we've 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 put Austria to the sword one uh, 0 So uh, so I'm not sure that. I'm not well. I, you know, maybe, maybe. Um, two pieces that people have asked me to ask you about, which have been extremely popular in in, in the print edition and online, are um, about uh, and they're they're about these these insights into uh, German culture that, that I think we 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 know very little about. The, the the first one is that Germany's got the lowest home ownership quota in in the EU. It's about forty five percent. What on earth? causes that and and will that change or is that just deep rooted in i think it's deep rooted for some reason um if you if you look at ocd switzerland is even lower but we're by by far um the countries with the lowest home on on a rate i think it's uh has to do with sort of multi-causal as always but um a uh renters um are very well protected legally so it's it's near to impossible to um to end for for a landlord to um to kick out a, a rent unless he, he sort of doesn't pay his rent for months and months and months not just for one month or two months so um protection level is very very high and then secondly german banks are quite strict on on handing out loans unlike as you've seen in the in the us i don't know what it's like in in the uk there's a general sentiment that you actually have to probably probably buy a house and sort of pay off the loan, whereas in, in countries like Denmark or in the UK, you you, you buy a, a flat or a house, uh, get a loan, and then at some point sell um, mm. and get the next place. And that's that's highly unusual for Germany. People at the moment are complaining that, in especially in large cities, as always in popular popular areas, it's um, getting more and more difficult actually to finance, um, to get the money together to, to actually buy property. Um, so even if people wanted to, um, in, in, in some parts of the country, they couldn't afford um, to, to buy stuff. But um, on the other hand, uh, other parts of the country are sort of becoming deserted in a way and, and, and people who actually want, would like to sell their house or, or their flat can't find buyers. But um, because you don't sort of there's no um, there's no pressure really on people to buy uh, in terms of I have to buy something in order not to be kicked out of my flat or my house when I'm older and or may lose my job. Um, that is a very sort of very socially orientated legislation in Germany. Yes, I think. I mean, I think this is uh, our, our willingness to buy and sell houses is, is partly what's keeping us afloat. I think, but uh, but there you go. <laughs> once you're once you're in your house in Germany or rented or, or bought, you 
you enjoy the best windows in Europe, uh, <laughs> according, to, according to one of your columns. Tell me about why German windows are so amazing. Well, it depends on how you define best, because I, I think the prettiest are still the, the, the British sash windows. Um, a colleague once called them sort of the romantic version, where the, the Germans here have the sort of pragmatic engineering one. Um, it's, it's windows you can sort of, you can, um, uh, I even forgot the term for it in English, I had to look it up, it's, it's kip fenster, so you can... Um, you, you can air your, your, your place without ha having to fully open the windows. Um, and um, they're just very, the chancellor, even when, when, when she was asked about what, uh, what she liked most about Germany, she said, tight windows, because you don't have a draft really in, in, in modern houses, in sort of modern from, let's say, 1970s onwards, there's no draft. I, I live in a sort of 1900s building in, uh, in Berlin, so we have sort of double windows which you have to open and it's very loud and um, they're not as um, as good, of course, as as the ones that, that were, in, uh, were in, invented decades later. But um, once sort of doing doing my research for for that for that topic, I found that um, it was because uh, it was sort of a, a climate protection legislation that forced uh, builders to to come up with something new in order to sort of to to. Um, Keep the the heat inside and um, and be more sort of energy saving in a way. So that that actually pushed German engineers to to invent those new windows. And that's the interesting thing when you live in a country and grow up in a country, you don't realize what what other sort of what foreigners visiting um, would would find spectacular. But there are YouTube videos on on German windows by Korean people and Japanese <laughs> and Americans who are absolutely fascinated um, because apparently that's sort of engineering wise. Um, I'd have to admit sort of the Swiss Austrians and probably Scandinavians aren't that bad either, but um, that is, is quite something. And uh, having spent some time in Ireland and, and, and in, in, in the UK as well, uh, that sort of the draft issue, especially in, in sort of the rainy season is really, is really an issue there. It's a thing. It is a big yeah. thing. It's a big thing. Tani, before I, before I let you go, uh, that, that's, that is, fascinating what because I'm, I'm i'm so interested in in what happens to people after they leave the big stages what what will merkel do in retirement will she will she find another gig or will she just sit there opening and closing her windows and go to the opera occasionally well she'd definitely go to the opera probably more than than just occasionally she herself has said that she's not um she has no intention whatsoever <clears throat> to enter another public office. So um, there were there were speculations even years ago that she might sort of head towards the, the United Nations or Europe or something of the kind. And and she sort of put an end to those speculations by saying she has no intention to once once leaving politics, she, she has no intention to run for for another sort of for office again, whatever office that may be. Um, and she's in in terms of sort of her, her own career, etc, she's always stuck to, to her word. Um, I don't know whether it'll it'll be sufficient for her to to I don't know write books, mm. give the occasional interview, um, or appear in a documentary maybe, and and do cultural stuff. On the other hand, I mean, sixteen years of being chancellor in Germany, I'm sure she has a lot of um, as you say, opera and other things to um, sort of to pick up on she just missed in the last 16 years. I mean, there's not, there's not a lot of, uh, if any, sort of private time you have in, in, in that office. So, um, that, that 
something well deserved for her to just enjoy basic to, to enjoy retirement if people let her I'm not sure they will and um, after some people after one year or two years of retirement or even three months they, they get bored so I don't know what what, what it'll be for her but um, sort of judging by her own words she wants to retire she's not she's not even going to as other other chancellors uh, have she, she's not running for parliament again either so we had um, we had other chancellors like uh, Gertrude or, or, or Cole, who still had a had a mm. parliamentary had a, had a seat and uh, she's even giving up that. Well, we will see what happens next. Yeah. We'll see what happens next to, to Angela Merkel. We'll see what happens next in our the weird relationship between uh, between England <laughs> and Germany. Uh, we will continue to be obsessed with you, and you will continue to ignore us. Uh, uh, that was uh, that was wonderful. Tanique Cock, whose brilliant column German Splaining, appears every week in the New European. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Tanique Cock there with uh, tilted windows, Angela Merkel everything else i mean it's just extraordinary isn't it the, the, the home ownership uh, thing is uh, uh, alone is a remarkable statistic and you can get those kind of insights every week uh, in tonight's column german splaining if you'd like to uh, enjoy more from the new european do join us by subscribing for just eight pounds a month at the new european.co.uk slash subscribe uh, now, we asked you, New European Podcast listeners, what you made of Keir Starmer's TV interview with Piers Morgan uh, the other night. Uh, a mixed reception, I would say. Peter Johns said it was good. Keir Starmer came over well. It usefully debunked all the privileged background nonsense that's been brought on principally because he accepted a knighthood for good work to please his terminally ill mother. Will Bird said no. It was not good. 14 plus months of absolutely no media scrutiny of this useless, empty figure, followed by an hour on ITV to introduce him to the public like a box of rebranded washing powder. Ian Greenwood said, I was impressed. All the Starmer haters had better realise that the only way to get things done is to win from the centre and then move left. See Joe Biden in the USA. Karen Phoenix Hollis said, I thought he came across well, but there was something about the programme that just seemed too stage managed, too gushy. The audience were too enthusiastic. His friends talked about him like he was a saint. It just felt disingenuous. Paul John, unimpressed. It was a scripted interview in front of cameras for the purpose of uh, selling himself to the electorate. Anyone who can cry in that situation can clearly manipulate his own emotions and seek to manipulate others. Maybe he was just upset. I don't know, Paul. Uh, Tina Carlin said it was a good interview. Keir Starmer came across very, very well. Piers Morgan came across as a bit of a prat and, and incredible uh, that. Uh, Lewis David Rees said, uh, I did not watch it. I had some grass growing that needed watching. Sorry. And Sheila Faitney said, no, I did not watch it. I had an urgent viewing of paint drying elsewhere. Now, it's always a pleasure to have James Ball, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism on this podcast. This week in the New European He's written about Joe Biden. But first, James, did you watch um, Keir Starmer's big interview with Piers Morgan this week or were you, were you washing your hair instead? I mean, I, I would genuinely, I think, rather break out in hives than watch Piers Morgan do anything um, <laughs> other than perhaps be publicly executed. But since <laughs> since I think we are at the new European anti-capital punishment, uh, I did decide to do literally anything else. 
I'm not, I, you know, I've, I've watched, I have, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it all. I've got to say, um, but neither was I in the, uh, in the camp of the, the readers who said that they had urgent viewing of, of paint drying elsewhere. Um, I mean, he, he came across. Okay. He, he it was fairly, um, it was fairly softball from Piers Morgan. I think he didn't, uh, he didn't call him a snowflake or, uh, or attack him for getting stressed or anything like that. And when, when Keir Starmer did tear up, he didn't tell him to grow a pair or anything like that. Although I think he did tell him to grow a pair at another time, but that was just uh, a joke. Um, he did avoid the Nick Clegg question, didn't he? He did. He avoided the, the Nick Clegg question, which, of course, for people who don't know, is is how many women have you slept with? Um, and Nick, did Nick, how many women did Nick Clegg say he'd slept with? Do you remember? Sir, he, he tried to avoid it. This is the really tragic thing about it. He, he <laughs> did try and go, he did try to do, well, less than you, I imagine, or that kind of thing, and then ended up saying not more than 30. Uh, which, of course, immediately turned into headlines in every paper going, Nick Clegg, I've slept with 30 women. That's right, yes. And, of course, the, there was that um, there was that clip of him in the House of Commons um, not long afterwards. I don't know if you remember this, where um, I think it was sort of a couple of days after this interview and he, he opened a, a PMQs by saying, I met a female civil servant the other day. Oh, somebody, no. Somebody went, 31. <laughs> oh, no. No, I'd forgotten that completely. Yeah, it was one to uh, it was one to block out. He also avoided Keir Starmer also avoided the, um, you know, how much drugs have you taken and how much did you enjoy it question. Um, which, um, but just look at his hair. I, I think, clearly. I think, given he's a former DPP, that one could have got very awkward indeed, couldn't it? Yeah, but look at his hair. Look at that picture of him in when in his, in his <laughs> youth. You know. I think he's definitely he's inhaled, hasn't he? And uh, and more, I would say. Um, anyway, you, you talk about Joe Biden this week. Uh, before we start, how much are you enjoying these reports that Donald Trump is telling friends that he expects the uh, result of the election to be overturned and to be president again by August? I mean, let's let's be honest. It's uh, it's fairly clear, despite being president of the country for four years, that Donald Trump has never read the U.S. Constitution, <laughs> uh, let alone. Un- understood it um, it's sort of magical isn't it it's if if that's what trump needs uh given um did, did you see that he'd sort of made a big thing that he was going to launch his own social network yes and then it was this from the desk of donald trump that basically just let him do tweet length proclaim sort of proclamations with the hope that other people would then share them on social media um, it has, less than a month after being launched, been permanently canned, uh, which the best observation I saw said that it had lasted two Scaramucci's, uh, named after his uh, very, very short-lived press secretary, who lasted for about 11 days. Yes, he's, he, he's got more than 11 days' worth of interviews out of it since. Uh, I wonder whether this is the first stage of an insanity plea for Donald Trump. And <laughs> whether it will be, you know, it will be not so much a white house, but a sort of white, comfortable white room manned with people in white coats uh, and, uh, and all of that. Um, Joe Biden, obviously we've got the G7 coming up, we've got the NATO summit coming up. Uh, a lot of people expected... Joe Biden to come into these things not really having done very much apart from not be Donald Trump but it's that's not the way it's turned out at all is, is it? 
No, he's he's been a bit more interesting than people expected, I think, um, and has been trying to do more than people thought. Um, I mean, I found it quite interesting. Obama this week tried to say that Biden was sort of finishing the job that they started and was continue, continuity Obama. Mm. And that's not really been the case, actually. Biden's gone quite a lot further on foreign policy than Obama or Trump, actually. Um, both, well, all three presidents sort of inherited the the war on terror and the uh, the war in Afghanistan. Um, but Biden's the one who has come in and just gone, no, get everyone home. You know, damn the consequences, get the troops home. Um, and he set the deadline of September this year, which fairly obviously 20 years since 9-11. Um, and he's followed through. Now, this is not don't good like news to think of him for... following through. He's an old man. <laughs> this is not good news for Afghanistan. It really should no. be stressed. Yeah. Like, but as others have pointed out, the US staying there was more or less keeping a lid on something that would happen anyway. And so there are arguments in both directions. But he has actually just come in and done the thing. Um, he also did a much, much bigger stimulus package sort of post-corona than most people expected and quite a progressive one. It introduces things like child benefit for the first time Ooh. in the UK, uh, in the US. Um, a lot of talk centred on the $1,400 stimulus checks, um, but unemployment insurance went up by $300 a week. Like that's actually a fairly considerable amount of money. Yes. Um, and especially in the US, which has an incredibly weak welfare safety net. Um, you know, Biden's stimulus package was $1.9 trillion and passed without a single Republican vote. Um, you know, that's twice the size of, uh, of Obama's post the financial crisis. So he's been pretty progressive and he's got more done than people thought, given he's dealing with a tiny House majority a Senate that's on a 50-50 tiebreak with some very conservative Democrats. Um, and he does seem to be trying a pretty ambitious infrastructure package. You know, the Republicans are trying to keep it to a few hundred billion, you know, as if that's pocket change. Yeah. Uh, but once again, he's going for two trillion or so. And he's trying to include things like childcare in it. Um, now, if childcare sounds strange as infrastructure to you it sounds strange as infrastructure to everyone um but there's an argument that it's social infrastructure because it's part of the plumbing that helps people work and live fuller lives um which i think is an argument that can be made um now whether he'll pass it is of course another question but he is at least trying to do some quite ambitious progressive things Yes, it's it's incredibly heartening, isn't it? And um, and you know, and it's and it's also very strange, isn't it? At a time when we are, when we're looking at the government's massively ambitious catch up payments for uh, for school children, it's quite something to be that we're being outspent by an American uh, an American president. I, you know, I noticed that we're already pretending that this is just the first tranche of all the money that we're going to spend on school children instead of uh, instead of you know six quid a week, six quid each, and some turkey twizzlers, which uh, is what it really was going to do. Um, how is he going to pay for all of this? Because you know, as we arrive at the, the G7 summit, 
you know, he's talking about a global standard on business tax, isn't he? But how's he going to pay for it at home first? Um, I, I mean, he is he's posing some quite major tax raises, rises, but only on the ultra wealthy. It's sort of America has hit such a ridiculous point that what they class as being on a pretty high income is ludicrous. I mean, let me stress, in the UK, if you earn £50,000, you're in the top 15% of earners. You know, when people talk about the top 10%, that's about 68000 Um, Biden has pledged not to raise taxes on anyone earning less than $250,000 a year. Um, so that gives you a sense of sort of how he feels he can raise quite a lot more revenue from quite a small number of people. Now, the US is a richer country than we are. It has more people on very high incomes. Um, But he is proposing sort of various uh, different things on high income and then on sort of shares and bonuses and similar things like that, that can pay for a reasonably high amount of it. Now, I'm not sure the sums actually add up, but I'm also not sure they need to. Uh, if the you you know do you know the old saying if you owe the bank a thousand a thousand pounds you're in trouble if you owe the bank a million the bank's in trouble. Mm. Um, if the US ever defaulted on its debt, the global economy would blow up. So they can sort of borrow what they want, really. Um, so Democrats tend to get tie themselves up with paying for stuff when they don't necessarily need to. And, and what's what is the, the the idea that we there is a, a global standard on business tax? What what is he going to the the G seven proposing? Is this is this the answer to all of our moans about Facebook and Google and companies like that just moving uh, moving where they're headquartered to avoid uh, to evade evade tax? It's to avoid tax. Yeah. We should we should be quite careful. Yes, Evade is the illegal one. That's right. Uh, yeah. So it's a sort of modest first proposal, but it's a little bit revolutionary in some ways, um, which sort of fits Biden's new tag of boring but radical. Um, the idea is the G7 economies and about 120 others would agree a minimum rate of corporation tax on large corporations. Now, I think Biden wants to apply this to essentially all multinationals. So whether you're Kraft Heinz or Google, uh, this would apply to you. The UK is trying to keep it just to tech companies for some insane reason, uh, possibly because we have no major tech companies sort of set here. But all it would do at the moment is set a minimum rate of corporation tax of 15%. They were initially trying for 21%. Uh, and people sort of thought that was a little much. Um, for reference, Ireland's at the moment is 12.5%. Now, this doesn't s- suddenly solve all of your problems. Um, when we think of tax havens, we tend to think of little islands in the Caribbean, but one of the worst is the Netherlands, um, which charges something like 0.8% tax on uh, profits derived from intellectual property. Wow. Um, and so people tend to have their IP and their brands and so on owned out of the Netherlands and move that money through there for a very low profit rate and do little tricks like that. Right. Now, this headline corporation tax wouldn't fix that. But what it would do is mean that 130 
countries potentially had taken joined up action on corporation tax to try and make it less useful for them to move shift move money around to shift profit around now once you've done that once you can do it again and so the way to think of it is this first one might do a little bit but then they're cooperating then they've got this mechanism and they can ratchet it up and make it more and more useful and harder and harder to avoid and so it's a really interesting precedent and the US is probably one of very few places that could actually set the ball rolling on it it's something the EU could have done but because Luxembourg and the Netherlands and so on make a lot of money by being tax avoidance havens um, the EU's never really gone anywhere with it. This is such a good idea. I can't possibly believe that it's it's going to happen. Um, what are the dangers at home for Biden from all of this? Obviously, you know, Afghanistan is 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 a, a, a real danger. But you know, he's not a great campaigner to begin with. By the end of this year, he's got to focus on the the, the twenty two midterms, which are really going to sort of make or break his presidency aren't they if he's if he's serious about running again he's he's gonna to have to win the 2022 20, midterm surely well so, you say that, that. Um, well, the 2010 midterms did uh, not go well for barack obama and it no, didn't he got shellacking any of these as he said yes that's right romping to a second term um but it did mean that obama really got nothing done after his first two yeah. years um the midterms look absolutely horrendous for Biden. Yes. Um, Obama had about 50, once you include the independents that voted with him, Obama had 59 Senate seats and a House majority of nearly 80. Um, Biden has a tiny House majority in a 50-50 Senate. Mm. Um, so he will almost certainly lose control of both houses in the midterms. Uh, Democrats tend not to vote. There's been yet more gerrymandering. There's been more voting rights restrictions. And the Republican Party is even worse now than it was in 2010. Um, it is the party of Donald Trump. There is almost no sort of principled constitutional Republican Party left. Um, and so it's really impossible, very difficult to see a path for the Democrats to hold both houses. And as soon as they lose those really Biden is left with the power over foreign policy and the power to block legislation. Um, I think he would even struggle to appoint judges. Um, you know, we saw what Mitch McConnell got up to with the Supreme Court. I think he might do it with lower courts as well. So they could have quite a difficult thing going on. Yeah, hence he's a man in a hurry. Well, we will uh, we will see uh, how it all uh, how it all uh, comes out for for Joe Biden. Um, but uh, you know what a what a start he's made, and uh, and hopefully uh, more to come at the G seven uh, this week uh, next week rather. Uh, James Ball, thanks so much. Uh, you can read James every week in the New European. And finally, the Hall of Shame. It's our home for terrible politicians bad legislation, things that just annoy me generally. Uh, let's start with uh, 
the, the website Guido Forks, Paul Staines, uh, the uh, right-wing Tory campaigner, runs that. Um, and a uh, big story there the other day, we've just been talking about it, a uh, uh, story on Guido Forks that said, viewers have been turned off by Sakir's live stories. Guido learns ITV viewers almost halved from Coronation Street's 3.5 million viewers to the start of Keir Starmer's live stories, 1.7 million. For comparison, Piers Morgan managed to pull in 2.3 million viewers for his episode with Loose Wibbins, Colleen Nolan. And it's just incredible, that story, isn't it? Because it's amazing to me that Piers versus Kia, which was shown on one of the sunniest days of the year with all the pubs open, all the restaurants open, cinemas open, some gigs happening, people on holiday, kids on half term. It's amazing to me that that should have got fewer viewers than uh, a broadcast Piers Morgan did with Colleen Nolan, uh, which went out when everything was shut and the weather, weather was bloody awful. Um, Black Igad Harumph, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner. Uh, and Anne Widdicombe has written this week in her bonkers Daily Express column about the new national yacht. The Queen may be resisting the proposal to call the new national yacht after Prince Philip in case the public thinks the boat is extravagant, says Anne. I think she can rest easy. The nation showed its affection for Prince Philip in April, and it's far better to have his name on its side than the name of some woke hero. Well... I mean, how to un unpick that? How foolish we would be to consider the wishes of an elderly widow about his husband's legacy when it might upset Anne Widdicombe. And anyway, who on earth has been suggesting that we should name the national yacht after a woke hero, whatever that is? Have I missed a meeting about this? Who are we going to name it after? I'll tell you what I would really like to see that would keep Anne Widdicombe happy. The new royal yacht, the national yacht, the royal yacht, as it used to be called, should be named after an actual royal like Prince Philip. And I look forward to Anne Widdicombe cracking a bottle of champagne as the HMS Duchess of Sussex sets sail into the horizon sometime very soon. The Department of Transport I'm putting into the Hall of Shame. I know some people might expect me to be putting the, the Leave Voters of Kent in the Hall of Shame, um, but I'm going to put the Department of Transport in instead. I'd, you know, the people of Kent made their decision. I thought it was the wrong decision when they voted 59.4% to leave in the referendum. Um, but they've been stiffed ever since, these people, and, and now the people of Ashford have been rewarded with um, a light show, and it's not a fireworks celebrating our independence from the EU. It's a harsh white lighting at the 66-acre Brexit lorry park in Sevington. It could be seen for miles across the county. I've written about it in the New European this week. There have been other things. Ashfordians are wondering why the Department of Transport picked a hilltop site in the first place for this, because clearly they knew that some floodlighting were going to, uh, was going to be involved. And it's a particularly bitter blow for them because the, all the local gossip after the referendum was that the government was going to make it really easy for, for Amazon to take over the site and, and put a new plant there on top of the hill. And that would create hundreds of jobs for local leave voting residents. And instead, they've got a floodlit lorry park with the lights on 24-7. The Department of Transport is refusing to release the results of a study into the site's environmental impact now. And local councillor Paul Bartlett uh, has claimed that being built only to the DFT standards and not the standards uh, 
uh, set by Ashford Borough Council mean that it avoided scrutiny and, and it avoided rules against uh, light, heavy lighting. Uh, Bartlett, who's a Tory and he lives 25 yards away from the, the lorry park, he added of the latest controversy, it's actually a lot better since they switched off the lights at plot F, which is nearer to me. It's not much comfort, that, Paul, is it, to the residents who live near plots A to E? Or to the Ashfordians who voted Remain, knowing that this kind of thing would happen? Or, or to the tens of thousands of local Leave voters who now know that they've joined the ranks of those who were once conned and can now be forgotten? But top in the Hall of Shame, I mentioned him right at the start of this podcast, is Tim Martin now. Does Tim Martin actually think that EU workers who left the UK because of the Brexit that people like him lied about, does he really think that they're going to fill in a load of forms and apply to move back to the UK on a short-term visa with fewer rights just for the glory of working in a Weatherspoons pub for a little bit over minimum wage? I don't think so. But I'll tell you a way that we can all help out Tim Martin with his staff shortages. Just don't go into Weatherspoons. The fewer of us that go into Weatherspoons, the less worry that there will be for Tim. Sorted. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thank you to Tanique Koch. Thank you to James Ball. And thank you to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean a lot to us. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European do join us by subscribing for £8 a month at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. And you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.